0: Good morning. Good morning. Happy Father's Day to all you dads out there, myself included. My boys are somewhere in here. I got my eyes on you. I love it. My my girls are over in children's ministry, my wife's serving over there. But, man, it is a heavy privilege to be a dad, isn't it? But how, how good it is to know we have a father who is supremely faithful. Faithful enough to... Make up for our failures as fathers, the failures of our fathers. He is one who is good. All his ways are perfect. We can trust him. Amen? Amen. Let's turn to God's word this morning. If you have your Bible, you can open up to Matthew chapter 12. We're continuing our series through the book of Matthew. Um, Unfortunately, our little backwards monitor isn't working today, so I apologize if I'm going to turn a lot this way as we look at different slides this morning. Um, We're going to be in Matthew 12. We're actually going to start reading together in just a second from the end of Matthew 11, what Bob taught us last week, um, which I thought he did such a good job. It's so great having him a part of our elder team. Super cool. But if you have your Bibles, again, open up to that. We're going to start in Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 28. Because what Jesus says in verses 20, 28 through 30, which is a really famous passage, basically all the themes of that passage continue into chapter 12, where we're going to be this morning. So follow along with me on the screens. Um, if you're able to, I know we've been doing a lot of standing and sitting, but they've said sitting is the new smoking, so we don't want to do too much of it, right? So if you are able to, would you stand with me and we will begin our reading in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now before we keep reading, there's this repeated idea of rest in this passage, right? And as we get into chapter 12, those themes are expanded as the first two stories have to do with rests, particularly about the Jewish day of rest, the Sabbath. What is this rest that Jesus brings, the lightness of his yoke, especially in comparison to the heavy yokes that particularly here the Pharisees were putting on people. So now let's continue in chapter 12, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, his disciples were hungry and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence. Which it is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. We'll go through verse 21. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them all. And ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. In a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Spirit, thank you for inspiring your word. Jesus, thank you for speaking these words to give us rest. To give us hope to restore and refresh our souls, to call us to learn from you, to be your disciples following your example. Would you use your word by your grace to make us more like your son today? We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. You can take a seat. Again, do you see the way that these themes continue from the end of chapter 11 into this part? This idea of rest. What is this rest that Jesus gives? What is this easy yoke, this light burden in comparison to the heavy yokes others were putting on people? What does it mean that Jesus is gentle and lowly, especially in contrast to like the growing hostility of the Pharisees who are Jesus' main conversation partners in this passage? But it all centers around these two stories that take place on the Sabbath. So what I want to do as we jump into this, take a few minutes just to talk about this idea of Sabbath, what that was all about, so we get the context of the situation that Jesus is addressing here. So again, remember, the Sabbath was one of the key identifiers, identity markers for the people of Israel. This idea of resting one day, the seventh day. Work six, rest once on the seventh was one of the defining markers of the Jewish people. It was one of the top 10 commandments, right? In the 10 commandments, in Exodus chapter 20, God told the people of Israel, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. Why? Because this was the pattern that God himself established in creation. In Genesis 1 and 2, these six days of creating everything and then resting on the Sabbath day, the Lord blessed that Sabbath day and made it holy. Think about the rhythm there between the two parts that are highlighted up there. God is the one who blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The Israelites were called to remember the holiness of that day and keep it, use it as that rest stop from their normal work like God did. That's what that Sabbath word means. The root of it is the idea of stop, stopping day. It was something that God modeled, not just for Israel, I would say, but because it's rooted in creation, it's something that he modeled for creation, for all of humanity, to follow his example, his model of working six days and resting one. But that rest that he talks about here, it's not just chill out. It's not just me time. It's not catch up on my favorite shows and things like that. Not that necessarily those things are always wrong, but do you see what he says there? The seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord, directed toward the Lord, focused upon the Lord. That this concept, this pattern of resting one out of every seven days, it is an invitation from God, our maker, to join him in his rest. Come to me. Rest in your relationship with me. So remember that and keep it holy. Later on in the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah talks about, again, reminding the people, here's what it means to keep this day rightly. He says this, If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, not a burden, a delight, a joy, And the holy day of the Lord honorable. If you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in who? In the Lord. What's the purpose of the Sabbath day? Not just to rest from your work or find your own little odd jobs to do or have it be me time. Take delight in the Lord. The Sabbath was a day for Israel to cease their normal work and rest in their relationship with God. To remember that though they work to provide for themselves and for their families, ultimately God is their provider and their sustainer, the one who gives them life. God is the one who both created us to work and created us to rest and to need rest. So here's the big picture thing to keep in mind. Both work, in the biblical mindset, both work and rest are gifts from God that God gave us for our good and for his glory. But like all of God's gifts, we as sinful, broken people, we can twist them, can't we? We can misuse good gifts from God. We can misunderstand the purpose of them. We can neglect them altogether. We can take certain ones and make it so primary that we neglect other ones, right? It doesn't take a lot of effort to think about ways that we can work wrongly, wrong motivations. We can work slavishly. We can work selfishly. We can be driven by greed, the desire for more stuff. We can be driven by anxiety, that sense of What am I going to work and eat and drink? All that stuff that Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. Don't worry, you have a Father in heaven who cares for you. We can work in a way that's somehow trying to prove our worth, make a name for ourselves, build our own little Tower of Babel through our careers. These are all ways in which we can twist work, right? But we can also rest wrongly, can't we? Sometimes we can rest wrongly by neglecting rest altogether. Which doesn't work for very long, because usually at some point, illness or injury forces you to stop and give your body the rest you deprived it. But on the flip side, maybe of neglecting rest, sometimes we can overindulge. We can be lazy. We can actually make rest more a part of the pattern of our life than work. We can look to others then to do for us what we refuse to do for ourselves and therefore put a heavier burden on them. That's not what Jesus does. His burden is light, right? We can neglect work. We can overindulge in work. We are in rest. We can rest selfishly, can't we? Make it about that me time that we feel entitled to. I say all that to say, because the, the way that the Pharisees were misusing God's gift of rest isn't necessarily, I would say, the way that that, that all of us do it. I wanted to give us a fuller picture of this. So as we approach the way that Jesus, as the Lord of the Sabbath, comes to restore God's purpose, his intent for this pattern of rest, we go, okay, wherever I might be, am I neglecting rest? Am I overindulging? Am I like the Pharisees and making it this legalistic burden? I would say what the Pharisees were doing in these, these stories, they'd taken all the restfulness out of rest. It was much more about splitting hairs over what was work and what wasn't, what was allowed or wasn't allowed. That's a misuse of the gift. So the big picture question I want you to keep in mind as we go through these stories this morning. How am I, take this personally, how am I currently right now using God's gift of rest? Because I think what we will see from the example of Jesus in these stories that we just read Is that God's intention for this gift of rest, this gift of Sabbath, this good pattern of rest, is both something we can receive. It's a gift to receive and a gift that we can give to others. Or maybe to put it this way, God's gift of Sabbath rest is so that we might both enjoy resting in God and extend that rest to others. Does that make sense? If not, we'll explore it as we go forward. One more thing before we jump more deeply into these stories. Okay, so, because the reality is sometimes when, when Christians talk about this idea of Sabbath rest, we like to argue about it. Christians have argued for centuries about this whole concept of the Sabbath and what are we supposed to do with this as followers of Jesus. Some people say, see, it's got to be Saturday like it was for the people of Israel. We have to do it that way. Others will say, no, no, with the church it shifted to Sunday. Sunday is the new Sabbath. Which I don't think is right. I mean, we do see that the early church gathered to worship like we're doing on Sunday. But that was more because that was the day Jesus rose from the dead. Not because they saw it as the new Sabbath. At least not at first. But other people maybe in that. They say, what are you arguing about? It really doesn't matter. That was an old thing for Israel. We don't even need to do that anymore. They went, look at like what Paul says in Romans 14. When he says, there's one person who esteems one day as better than others. And another person who seems esteems every day the same. And Paul says, let each of them be convinced in their own mind. This whole idea of resting, taking a Sabbath, it's a matter of personal preference. If you want to do it, it's okay, but you don't have to. And I would say, to an extent, that's true. It's not so much about the particular day of the week on which we must rest, but I would say to this, say this to you. Remember, the Sabbath was not just something that God gave Israel. It was something that God himself instituted in creation. I think this principle, this pattern of working six days and resting one is still a good and healthy pattern for us as humans. Now, if you've been around Cornerstone for maybe the last decade or so, I bet you there is a name that popped into your head as soon as I said the word Sabbath. Chris Hay, right? Right? Remember Chris? He was one of our pastor's elders until he retired a couple years ago. And Sabbath was a huge passion for Chris, wasn't it? He actually ended up writing his Ph.D. dissertation on the continuing relevance of Sabbath rest for followers of Jesus. He's Dr. Hay now, if you didn't know that. So as I started studying this passage, my first thought was I should probably talk to the doctor. So Chris and I, we, we set up some time. We, we talked over FaceTime earlier this week. He ended up sending me some sections of his dissertation that were super helpful to me. And, and by the way, he, he and Don wanted to say hi. He, make sure you say hi to cornerstone for us. They love us. They miss us. They're getting rooted there in life in Wisconsin. They found a great church to plug themselves into. But here, let me, this is fun. I, he probably wouldn't want me to do this, but I like calling him Dr. Hay. So here's what Dr. Chris Hay said about this whole idea of Does it matter for us as Christians? Building off of what Paul says in Romans 14. While Paul is not repealing the creation ordinance of stopping work one day out of seven, he is opening the door for that one day to be more flexible than only the seventh day, Saturday, or only the first day, Sunday, of the week. If a person chooses to celebrate his or her Sabbath on Saturday or Sunday, then that's fine if they are doing it in honor of the Lord. However, if a person chooses to celebrate his or her Sabbath on another day of the week, that is fine also. There is freedom in what day one takes as his or her Sabbath rest. For me personally, Saturdays and Sundays tend to be very uh, busy with church activities, which is a joy. I love getting to to, to, uh, do that. But at least for me right now, the, the easiest day to protect as a Sabbath day is Mondays. So even the whole time as I've been prepping to teach on this, I'm thinking, okay, Lord, how would you have me celebrate the gift of rest tomorrow? So as we dive into these stories now, again, that was worth it. I think you'll see it was worth it to take that time to set the table for this. Keep these two questions in your mind. How am I using that gift, both to enjoy it and extend it to others? Because that's what Jesus is confronting here with the Pharisees. The way that they had taken this good gift of Sabbath rest and turned it into a burden, a heavy burden. But Jesus says, my burden is light. My yoke is easy. So let's take his yoke upon us and learn from him in this passage. Amen. Back to verse 1. Here we go. Uh. The disciples are going through the grain fields on the Sabbath. They're hungry. They start just picking some grains. The law allowed them to do that. They weren't harvesting like taking bushels to take home. But you could kind of grab a snack on the way. You could walk through somebody's field and basically take the kernels, rub them in your hands, get the, the, the grains of wheat, and eat them along the way. That's what the disciples are doing. But the Pharisees see this, and they go, no, you guys are doing something that is not right to do on the Sabbath. You're doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. Now, the Pharisees, it's easy to bag on them. And Jesus goes after them hard. We're going to continue to see that from this point on in the book of Matthew. But before we bash them, let's try to understand their heart. The Pharisees, to their credit, took God's commands Very seriously. I would say probably far more seriously than many of us do. If God commands us to do no normal work on the Sabbath, that should matter to us, right? That should be important to us. Okay, but then it's really easy to go to the very next question, which is, what is normal work? What does that mean? What kind of things could we or should we not do on the Sabbath? Because there's there's certain stuff that still has to get done, right? Like waking up and getting dressed and brushing their teeth. I don't know if they did that, but like there's a certain amount of walking just about the house. Is walking work? Is it a matter of how much you walk? Like is it a reverse of our smartwatches where instead of counting how many, make sure we get enough steps, make sure you don't take too many That seems to be the way that the Pharisees did it. I'm going to look at this really quickly from Acts chapter 1. There's this point in chapter 1, right after Jesus ascends into heaven, where it talks about the disciples walking back from the Mount Olivet to Jerusalem. And it says that the distance was about a Sabbath day's journey away. You know what that phrase, Sabbath day's journey, refers to? The distance that enough Pharisees agreed on that was okay to walk before it became work. It was about a kilometer or like 0.6 miles. They would say, if you stay under that, you're not working. If you go over that, you're working, you're violating the Sabbath. Why? Because we say so, and we're the experts. This seems to be the general way that the Pharisees approached God's law, with this sense of looking for more specificity than was there. Make it more black and white. Remove the gray. They would say to people, it's like, we know it can be hard to know for sure if you're keeping God's law. So we've taken the guesswork out of it for you. So just do what we say and you'll be good. The problem was when Jesus showed up on the scene, he didn't just do what they say so he would be good. He said things differently. We saw it in the Sermon on the Mount, right? You've heard the Pharisees say it this way. But I say to you, it's this way. There's something very similar going on here. Jesus is claiming an authority to rightly interpret God's law, even restore it to its intent. And in so doing, he was stepping directly on the toes. Not even the toes. He's like up on the arch of the foot of the Pharisees and their self-appointed sense of authority. And that's why in this passage they react so strongly against him. This is the straw that breaks the camel's back right here, the Sabbath for the Pharisees. So again, they say to Jesus' disciples, you're violating the Sabbath. And Jesus basically says, no, they're not. They might be violating your traditions, but who made your traditions the authority? His response is really interesting. What he does here in verses 3 and 5, he quotes, he references two, I would say, rather obscure instances from Israel's history. And I don't want to get caught in the weeds here, but Jesus brings it up, so it should be important to us. He references one story about David and his men. When David has been anointed as king of Israel, but he's not yet become king, Saul's still on the throne and he's trying to kill David. You may be familiar with that that series, that season in David's life. So David and his men, they flee. They got to get out of town quick. They don't take food or anything with them. They come to where the tabernacle was and they come up to a priest named Ahimelech and they go, do you have any food? And Ahimelech says, all we have is this bread of the presence. These, these 12 loaves that would have been placed in the tabernacle in God's presence for the week. And then each day on the Sabbath, they would take them out, put fresh bread in there. And then the priests, and only the priests, would eat that holy bread. So Ahimelech says, the only food that I have is the holy bread. And then he gives it to David and his men and they eat it even though they're not priests. And here's the thing. Neither Ahimelech or David or his men are ever condemned or punished for doing so. So in some ways, what Jesus is doing by referring to this story is he's looking at the Pharisee and he goes, okay, how far are you willing to go with this self-appointed authority of yours? I mean, you'll, you'll condemn my disciples for what they're doing, but would you have condemned david as well i mean really who's the judge here and why do you think that it's you is really jesus's point here the second story is a little more straightforward he talks about what the priests did on the sabbath there were daily sacrifices that the priests needed to offer every day in the morning and the evening they would offer a lamb as a burnt sacrifice along with some grain offering and some wine as a drink offering Every day, morning, and evening. Then on the Sabbath day, they would double that. Two lambs in the morning, two lambs in the evening. That was also the day, like we talked about in the other story, they would change out the bread. Jesus' point is to say, do you get it? That the priests actually have more work to do on the Sabbath? And he says that violates the Sabbath. Well, it violates the Pharisees' traditions. But it was actually commanded by God. Jesus' point, he's pointing out a gap in their thinking. He goes, do you recognize there was work in your eyes that was not only allowed on the Sabbath, but commanded on the Sabbath? And it doesn't even fit into your thinking. You didn't take it into account. But then in verse 6, he says something that would have just dropped their jaw. Drop. What did I say? Dropped their jaws. That's what I was trying to say. Okay. He says in verse 6, I tell you, there is something greater than the temple here. What? From a Hebrew mindset, there is nothing greater than the temple. The one charge that they get to stick on Jesus later on when they want to crucify him is that he said he would destroy the temple and raise it up in three days. That's grounds enough to kill him. temple was a big deal. There's nothing bigger. This is where God's presence dwells with the people. This is where we come to worship, to bring our sacrifices. This is where heaven and earth meet. There is nothing bigger than the temple. And Jesus says, I am. And what I am doing is a bigger deal than that. So if it was okay for them to do that right work on the Sabbath, what my disciples is doing is okay. It may violate your tradition, but it does not violate God's intent. Man, we learn from elsewhere in the New Testament this idea that Jesus is better than the temple. I love the way that that John puts it in John chapter 1 when he lets us know that Jesus is this one he calls the Word who was with God in the beginning before anything else was created. He was with God and he was God from the beginning. Jesus is God. And then in verse 14 of John chapter 1, he says that this Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God with us. That's what we celebrate at Christmas time, right? The incarnation. God coming to be with us as one of us. And if Jesus is God with us, dwelling with his people in a closer, more intimate way than the temple, that also means that Jesus is what he says in verse 8. The Lord of the Sabbath. I am the one who has the authority to determine what is the proper use of God's good gift of rest. What fits with my intention for this? And again, he says, what my disciples is doing does not violate the Sabbath. It might violate your traditions, Pharisees, but your traditions are not Lord. I am Lord. Then in verse 7, this is crazy. He actually refers back to a previous conversation he'd had with the Pharisees. He says, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He's quoting from the Old Testament prophet Hosea. If you flip back in your Bibles two chapters to Matthew chapter 9, we see this thing referenced again. Look what Jesus says in Matthew 9. This is right after he's called Matthew the tax collector to come be his disciple. And Matthew throws a party for Jesus and the disciples, and the Pharisees get all stuck up about it, and they go, why are you hanging out with tax collectors and sinners? And remember what Jesus says there in verse 12? It's not because these guys are okay. They're sick. I came like a doctor for the sick. But then he says this, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Several weeks ago when I was teaching through this section of Matthew 9, I talked about how that phrase there from Hosea 6, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, it's a Hebrew figure of speech that doesn't mean this, not that. It means this, more than that I desire mercy more than sacrifice that's important to keep in mind because God is not saying to the people of Israel and Hosea I don't want your sacrifices he's the one who commanded them to bring them but what he is saying is that your intention your motivation what you mean by that action is more important than just the action itself it's not just about bringing these sacrifices because you think it'll earn God's favor or get Him off your back. The sacrifices themselves were all about mercy. God's kindness to undeserving people, to give them a way to approach him when they failed. Bring a substitute, a sacrifice to stand in your place, die on your behalf, and this will be made right. We will be able to be together. Do you see the way Jesus is bringing something even better in Jesus God has come to his people no longer them coming to him with a sacrifice Jesus is God coming to them as that sacrifice as that perfect sacrifice if God says in Hosea 6 6 that he desires mercy more than sacrifice do you see the beauty of this picture that in the person of Jesus Christ God's mercy And sacrifice come together. He is that perfect sacrifice. As we sang a little bit ago, who could imagine so great a mercy? What heart could fathom such boundless grace that the God of ages would step down from glory to do what? To wear my sin, to bear my shame. That's who Jesus is. That's what he has done for you if you have come to him. Jesus is not just the doctor for the sick. He is the cure too. Do you see that? That's why it's worth continuing to praise him and learn from him together. But again, notice here in Matthew 9, he tells the Pharisees, go learn what this means. And then in Matthew 12, he kind of follows up. He says, if you had known what this means. See the difference there? This is basically Jesus coming with the report card. In Matthew 9, he gave them the assignment, go learn what this means. Now he comes in Matthew 12 and he says, you didn't learn it. You didn't learn it. You still think it's about splitting hairs over what is or isn't work. You think that's what God wants? Fretting over how many steps I take today? And because you didn't learn this lesson, that mercy and sacrifice come together, you've condemned the guiltless. You've put a heavy weight on people's shoulders that I never expected them to bear. And then you've made that weight even heavier by heaping your condemnation on them because they didn't fail to live up to your man-made standard. Listen, if that sounds to you at all like what your church background has been like, that's not Jesus. Jesus says his yoke is easy. His burden is light. He says, take that yoke on. Learn from me. Walk in my footsteps. But if you do that, I'm not here to weigh you down and crush you. I am here to give you rest. His idea of Sabbath is not just rigidly enforcing rest, splitting hairs of what is or isn't work. It's enjoying God's gift of rest and extending that to others. That's what the next chapter in the story talks about. Look at verse 9. We'll move through this one a little bit more quickly. Verse 9. Jesus went on from there and he entered their synagogue. This could have been the same day or just another Sabbath day. Matthew basically saying, another episode in this theme. Here's another Sabbath story. And a man was there in the synagogue with a withered hand, and they, the Pharisees, asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? Now, here's the deal. Here's the, the rub, the, the debate going on at this time. Most Sabbath, most rabbis would have agreed that the Sabbath prohibition from work could be put on hold in a life-threatening situation. If someone is dying, if they are bleeding out in front of you, save them. Life-saving intervention was allowed on the Sabbath. But if it wasn't a life, an emergency situation, they would say, wait. There's actually another story in the book of Luke where Jesus heals someone on the Sabbath from a long-term condition she'd had for 18 years. And the ruler of the synagogue is mad at him. He says, there's six days to do that kind of stuff. Come back tomorrow. Don't do that today. It seems with this dude with the withered hand, again, this probably was something that he had dealt with for a long time, and that was the rub. For the Pharisees, according to their way of looking at it, even healing is work that should wait until a not-Sabbath day. One of the commentators I was reading pointed out something really interesting about this verse. They asked Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So what do they believe that Jesus is able to do? They've seen it. Okay, we know you can heal people. But stop and think about how convoluted and twisted their thinking is. They don't even stop to consider the implications of Jesus having this kind of power to give this man rest from his suffering on the Sabbath day. All they can think about is, according to our way of looking at it, this is work that should wait for another day. And they look for a reason to accuse Jesus. But look what Jesus says in verse 11. Which one of you, if you have a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath day, will not take hold of it and lift it out? He's not creating a hypothetical situation. This was actually an active topic of debate in first century Judaism. Did you know that? In the way that the Pharisees and the rabbis like to split hairs of what was or wasn't worked, there were different groups that took stronger or or softer lines on something like this. One group, the Essenes, took a really hard line. They said, no, you may not help an animal in distress on the Sabbath day. Because for them, it was a question of who do you care about more? What What are you willing to sacrifice to honor God? What's more important to you? Your animal or honoring the Sabbath? They even said, if a living person falls into water, you cannot help them on the Sabbath because both you and they would be, fought, would be working. What? This is like the one area I've found so far where even the Pharisees went, guys, I think you're taking this a little too far. Most other rabbis, they took software and they would say, no, no, actually... It's not about do I care about God or care about animals, but God cares about my animals, so I think I can honor God by caring for my animals too. And if it's in distress, I can help it. But in their typical Pharisee way, you know what they did? How can we help them without breaking the Sabbath? Can we put a ladder down there so the animal can get itself out? Should we drop food down there so it has something to eat and then we come get it on Sunday? But the majority of Pharisees, this is what Jesus is referring to, the majority of Pharisees said, no, 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 go down and get it. Alleviating the animal suffering is not breaking the Sabbath. And this is what Jesus does. It's so wise here. He finds the one place where even the Pharisees said, guys, I think you're taking this a little too far. And he says, play that out. Be logical in the way that you're doing this. If you'll do that for an animal and you say it's not violating the Sabbath, how much more should you care for a human who is more valuable than that animal? If you all agree that humans are more valuable than animals, which would have been common sense in in the first century, not so much today. But in his day, if he says, if you all agree that a human is more valuable than an animal, but you are willing to help an animal in distress on the Sabbath day, how much more should you be willing to help a human being? And then he says this definitive statement in verse 12 it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath, to not only rest, but to give rest, to give relief to others if it is in your power to do so. And it is in Jesus' power. To do so. Look at verse 13. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored. That's what Sabbath is about rest and restoration. It was restored like any other. Jesus, in this act, is fulfilling God's intent for the Sabbath, and he is demonstrating to us the type of rest that he offers to those who come to him. I'm not here to weigh you down. I'm here to restore you. And yet, rather than come to him, the Pharisees went out. This is the fork in the road for them. And they say, we're gonna choose this path. We won't come to you, Jesus. We're gonna go out from you. And then it says... They conspired against Jesus to destroy him. Stop and think about like the gross irony of this. The the hypocrisy that should be plain to us but seem to go right over their heads. They're on Jesus' case for relieving a man of his suffering on the Sabbath day because it's the Sabbath day. And what do they go out and do on the Sabbath day? Plot to kill him. Like, that doesn't violate the Sabbath? Like, that's what God intended? How blind can you be? How trapped in your own self-righteousness can you be? But here, again, is the unexpected thing. At the moment when the Pharisees withdraw from Jesus, Jesus withdraws from them too. He withdraws from them too. There is a brewing conflict, and Jesus removes himself from the situation not out of cowardice or fear or reluctance to deal with conflict like maybe we do. He withdraws out of a sense of timing. The time will come for a more direct confrontation with the Pharisees. But it is not this time. Now is the time to welcome those who would come to him. He withdraws from the Pharisees, but he does not withdraw from those in need of a doctor. He says, come to me and you will find rest. And many did come to him. And what did he do? He healed them all. This is our Jesus This is who he is. This is the kingdom that he brings. It's not what we would expect. But here's the crazy thing. In the end of this passage, Matthew sees even in the purposeful withdrawal of Jesus from his enemies, and even telling those who he healed not to spread the word around, it's another indication for Matthew that promises from the Old Testament are being fulfilled. He actually gives his longest quote from the Old Testament here. From the book of Isaiah, chapter 42, which speaks of this one who is God's servant, who is loved by God. He actually purposefully echoes the words that God himself said of Jesus at his baptism. He's my beloved. I'm well pleased with him. I will put my spirit in him. And he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles, to the nations. Here's why I think that this is really significant here. At this moment, where one of the most influential groups within Israel have decided to reject Jesus and plot to destroy him, Matthew, in his narration of the life of Jesus, he says, This is the very moment to remind you that the mission of Jesus was always much bigger than just the nation of Israel. He is here not only to bring rest to the people of Israel, but to bring rest and hope and justice to all nations. But the way that he accomplishes this mission of justice for the nations is not the way that we would expect. Again, remember, that's the theme of this whole section of Matthew. The reality of Jesus' kingdom versus people's expectations. Look at how Jesus does his justice work. By not quarreling or crying aloud. He's not here to raise a fuss. He's not here to raise a holler. He's not here to kick butts and take names. As we sang earlier, this kingdom that Jesus brings, it's simple. It's humble. It's often backwards to the way that we would do things, right? This isn't typically the type of leader that we root for in our movies or vote for on our ballots. But this is the type of king that Jesus is. Remember what he said at the end of Matthew 11. He is gentle and lowly. What does that gentleness look like? If there's a bruised reed, if there's yeah, some stalk of grain growing on the hillside, and it's, uh, animals come by, kind of snapped it, and it's just hanging dangling there, he's not going to finish it off. He's not going to break it further. If there's a smoldering wick in your candle or your lamp, and it's just sitting there smoking, about to go out, he's not going to snuff it out. You know what the picture, like the word picture is all about communicating there? Jesus came for those that we often consider lost causes. He came, like he said, as a doctor for the sick. So listen to me. If you're here today and you feel sick, you know deep down that you are not okay on your own. Jesus came for you. If you feel bruised and beaten up by life, Jesus is not here to break you further. If you feel like you're smoldering, you're just hanging on like a candle that's about to go out, Jesus hasn't come to snuff you out. He is gentle, He is lowly, He cares for those we overlook and write off. Aren't you glad that's who He is? Jesus has come, again, as we saw in Matthew 11, to give us rest, to give us relief. Whether that's from man-made burdens or expectations that we were never intended to carry, like what the Pharisees put on people. Whether it's to give us rest and relief from suffering and pain, like the man with the withered hand. Which, again, maybe in this life we only catch a glimpse, a taste of it. But one day, Jesus will grant perfect and final rest when all pain and suffering and sorrow and death are done away forevermore. He has come to give you rest. He has come to give us rest through mercy and forgiveness for our failure, for our sin, for our rebellion. He's come to lighten our burden by first carrying our burden to the cross, dying, rising again in victory. Jesus has come, I would say, even to give us grace so that we might learn how to work from a place of rest. You know what I mean by that? There's a difference between working to prove your value and working knowing that your Father values you. Working for acceptance versus working from a place that I am accepted by the God of the universe, not because what I've done or might do, but because of what Jesus has already done. Doesn't that allow you to take a deeper breath? It allows me to rest, remembering, which I often need to be remembered or be reminded of. The weight of the world isn't on my shoulders. The weight of my own life, the weight of my kids, the weight of my family is not all on my shoulders. It is squarely and comfortably on Jesus' shoulders. I can rest in that children's song that Ian led us in last Sunday, that Jesus... He's strong. Little ones to him belong. We are weak. But Jesus is strong. We can rest with him. So here's the way I want to wrap things up. Come back to these questions. If Jesus has come to give us rest, how can we use that gift rightly? Both enjoy that rest. Extend it to others. If you recognize that in your life right now, you have been neglecting Rest. How might you implement a healthy pattern of rest starting this week? Again, not just as me time, but as a God-focused rest in who he is for you. As I mentioned, uh, I forget if I mentioned this earlier or not. I think I did. Like for me, the easiest day to protect as a rest day is Mondays. So this whole time as I've been prepping this, I've just been praying, going, Lord, what would it mean for me to take tomorrow, not just as a day to rest or to get the honeydew list done, though sometimes home project can be incredibly restful to me. I love it. Mowing the lawn. Oh, that is rest. <laughs> I love it. My boys are old enough to help now, and there's a little bit of like, okay, but I like it, right? I'm convicted and challenged to so go, what does it mean to not just use this as a day of stopping, but a day of god Focused rest, time in his word, time in prayer, time in relationships with others. If you recognize, maybe on the other hand, you've gotten into a habit of being selfish with your rest. This is my time, nobody encroach upon it. What would it look like to incorporate others in your rest more? This is actually something Chris and I were talking about. He was pointing out the fact that with that cool freedom that we have now, it doesn't have to be a certain day when we can rest. There's kind of a flat side to that because if we rest on different days, we lose the opportunity to rest together. And in an already individualistic culture, we can get really individualistic with our rest. So what would it look like to incorporate others into this Godward Sabbath rest? Maybe involving them a shared meal or activity or something like that, but doing it with not just, hey, we want to have people over, but with a sense of saying, can we come direct our gaze at God together? As we do whatever it is, go for a hike or eat dinner or something like that, let's make him a part of our conversation. Like, let's live with an awareness that he is here with us, of his presence with us. That's If Sunday is your Sabbath day, that's what makes corporate worship such a cool part of that. What we've gotten to do over the last hour plus is direct our gaze to God together and say, this is not about how much we can get done. This is about what Jesus has done for us and praising him and turning our attention to him together. What are ways maybe on the other side that you can extend rest to others? Again, if you've got young kids in your home, dads, Father's Day, you might already have the spot on the couch and the remote control set to go. What would it look like if your wife is frazzled with the the taxingness of little kids to go, hey, can I give you rest today? Can I take the kids for a while? Can I prep the meal? Can I give you time not just to go get other things done, but to rest in the Lord? What does it look again? Hello, there I am. What does it look again, even as fathers, to build rhythms of rest for your family? To model this for your children? It will mean saying no to other activities to protect it. But what a gift to give your kids. I'm going to build you whether you want it it initially or not. We're going to take this time to turn our attention to the Lord and learn to depend upon him, not just our own activities. We can extend rest to others when we pray for healing. If you would like someone to pray with you, when we sing one more song in just a second, there's folks up here at the prayer room. That's the main thing we want to do there. Point you to Jesus and say, he is here to restore your soul. Come to him. This is what drives our counseling and care teams. A desire to help people taste the rest that there is in Jesus. There's so many more ways that we could talk about this. But we're again, like I said, we're going to sing one last song together. But before we do that, what I wanted to do was give you, again, I've been talking and sharing some ideas, which I hope is helpful to you. I want to give you a minute or two just to pray through these same questions up here on the screen. What could you do this week and even beyond that to build these healthy rhythms of resting in God and extending that rest to others? So these next couple of minutes are yours, and then Cole will pray for us and lead us into the next song. Thank you all so much. God bless you.